Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Good morning, everybody. My name is Casey, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, looks like I draw quite a mob, huh? <laughs> I'm uh, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that you're here. And I want to thank uh, all of you that uh, that did come here this morning for uh, for being here and uh, for making Alcoholics Anonymous uh, the number one thing in your life. And uh, if you're anything like me, it's uh, it is the centerpiece of my life, and everything else flows out from that. If I take care of uh, my business in Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, in my life, and I try to practice these principles in all my affairs, then everything else seems to take care of itself. And uh, I, uh, I want to thank Morgan and the committee for asking me to come up here and participate. And uh, for uh, it's a it's a beautiful weekend. Uh, I was out on the golf course yesterday with uh, some sober guys and uh, playing the bayonet course at Fort Ord with Glenn and Pat and Rick and. Uh, and uh, Sharon and Wesley and I got to fly up here yesterday in a little uh, propeller-driven puddle jumper and flew up all along the coast. And I brought a book to read, but the whole time my nose was glued to the window looking at the, the incredibly beautiful California coast. And, uh, you know, I feel lucky to be alive. And uh, in a very short period of time, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. I am lucky to be alive. I'm lucky to be alive at all and uh, a survivor of the 60s and all of the other things that have been part of my life, but I'm a, we have a chronic progressive and fatal disease, and, uh, and you know what? <laughs> I love it. You know, I, I love that about alcoholism. It's dangerous. It can kill you, and uh, if you accept responsibility for it, there's something you can do about it. And it can change your life into the most enjoyable thing where you see that you're, you're alive and walking about in God's creation. And everything is, everything is gravy. Everything is, uh, that should be gone is here. And uh, I'm very pleased to be sober. I'm very glad to be sober. And uh, uh, for those of you who were here last night and listened to Earl talk, uh, Earl is on fire with the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's uh, and I think it's obvious to for, to all of us that we're here. And uh, I know uh, I know uh, one of the other speakers, and uh, tonight you're in for uh, for quite a treat. And uh, this is going to be a great weekend uh, in every way. I, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you a little story today. It's my life concerning the disease of uh, alcoholism. And uh, before I get to that, I'm going to tell you uh, an incident that happened a couple of weeks ago. I was at a meeting, and uh, a man that I know who's uh, about my age is uh, probably seven or eight years sober, and he was at a job for 14 years, and he was fired, and he was really broken up about it. And uh, he expected to retire out of that job. He was going to do this for the rest of his working life, and uh, and everything changed for him. And it reminded me of something that happened in my own life that uh, will really kind of bring you up to date about where I am. And uh, 
1989, I was the marketing director for an electronics company in Southern California. Uh, the 80s were winding down, and uh, we didn't uh, really think that it was going to be that big a shakeup. But at five minutes to five on New Year's Eve of 1989, I was called into the office of the president of this company, and they told me, he and the owner told me that uh, they were closing my department, that I was gone, and all 13 people that worked for me were gone. You know, no more secretary, no more company credit cards, no more name on the wall, no more on the door, no more rug on the floor. I was gone. And uh, welcome to the 90s, you know. It's like, uh, here we go. And uh, everything changed for me. I was seven years sober. I... Uh, I thought I had it made, and but all those defense contracts ended, and uh, and so I had to look around for something else to do, and I, uh, I I couldn't do that anymore. I didn't want to do that, and I started living on my credit cards, and I started playing a lot of golf. And uh, friends of mine said, uh, you know, watch out, you know, you're uh, you're drifting off here. And I said, I'm gonna, I think obsession is good. I'm gonna follow my obsession. And uh, within this past year, uh, <clears throat> I've uh, played in some senior amateur events in Southern California in golf, and sometimes I win. I'm one of the best amateur golfers in Southern California in my age group. I'm old enough to be in an age group again, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, I uh, played golf with a, uh, <clears throat> with a sober agent who said, uh, you can be making money from golf commercials. And I said, I don't want to be an actor. I'm not an actor. I have no talent for anything like that, and he said, let me send you out on some auditions. Last January, I got a nationwide uh, commercial. I got Taft-Hartley into the Screen Actors Guild, which I never wanted to do. I, uh, within, uh, I work for the motion picture business now. Within the past two months, I, was, uh, I got into the union that people join that do the kind of thing that I do, and, uh, you know, about a year, less than a year ago, within this past calendar year, a uh, guy that I met at an AA meeting in New York said, I don't have anybody representing my product at all on the West Coast. It's a golf product. How would you like to do that? Fine. And uh, so I'm his sole representative on the West Coast, and none of this would have happened if I had continued on being the marketing director for that little electronics company in Culver City. So... <clears throat> You know, when that big door slammed right in my face and broke my nose, it seemed like, uh, I, it really looked like a bad, bad thing. But uh, the seemingly bad is often transformed into something that you wouldn't even have... I had no idea that any of this was going to happen. And even a couple of years ago, I had no idea that, uh, that I would be where I am right now. I've been uh, sober since November 28, 1982, so I'm 14 years and two days sober. Uh, Thank you for that uh, smattering of applause. I, uh, uh, no, I appreciate it. Everything past five months was a new world record for me, so it's really no big deal. And in my home group, it's uh, kind of uh, average to be uh, 14, 15 years sober. And, uh, and I'm glad of that. I'm glad that there are plenty of old timers that are ahead of me on the, on the big wheel and that I get to watch what they do and how they do it. And uh, they... Uh, they show me how to function on the broad highway of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I came from a good family. My, uh, my parents were uh, nice people. There was no screaming at midnight around our house. I was the oldest of three kids. Uh, 
My younger brother and sister are uh, very successful. I tried to lead them down the primrose path in every way I could, but they insisted on uh, being uh, <clears throat> successful and uh, alcohol and drug-free most of the time, although I got them going pretty good there for a while, you know. <clears throat> and uh, my younger brother is a, is a very successful executive in Chicago. My baby sister, who I picture as being uh, about this big with uh, red pigtails, you know, that Irish kind of red hair, and uh, she uh, teaches at Princeton University and runs an art magazine in her spare time, and uh, and then there's me, you know, I uh, I like to uh, I like to quote a friend of mine named Cajun Joe from Golden Meadow, Louisiana, he says, uh, I like to tell the boys I sponsor, if you all come from a dysfunctional family, it's because you was in it, and... Uh, <laughs> And I thought that was a pretty cute thing to say, and I was, uh, and I realized uh, a little while back that this is the story of my life. You know, this is really, uh, this is me in a nutshell. Uh, you know, where I, I had a good childhood. I, uh, a funny thing happened when I was about uh, eight years old, though. I got polio, and this was before the Salk vaccine, and uh, and I was paralyzed. My legs didn't work at all. And I missed about uh, all of third grade. I went back right at the end. Uh, I was saved through a thing called the Sister Kenny method. I, uh, I don't have any residual effect from it. I was, you know, very lucky. And uh, a lot of people didn't survive that. But uh, when I went back to school, it seemed to me that I was treated as an outcast. And uh, I was shunned by the other kids. And I'm kind of from the school of maybe you're like this, too. You know, I, uh, I said... Uh, you know, you can't reject me. The hell with you. I don't need you anyway. You know, I reject you first. You know, I, uh, this is not going to be like this. And, uh, and I really retreated into myself, and I retreated into a world of reading books, and uh, I started living in a world of fiction. And uh, I liked that. I liked it a lot. I liked it more than real life. And I wasn't a part of it all. And it's a common thread in the stories of alcoholics that somewhere along the line, we felt completely different from the people around us. We felt uh, like we were from another planet or something. And, uh, and that was true for me. I set out to be a loner, outlaw, space cadet, Martian, geek, weirdo, and I succeeded beyond my wildest dreams, really. I, uh, you know, from the, time I was seven, from the time I was 10 till I was 17, I read a book every day that wasn't a school book. I was armed and dangerous. I was a wise guy in school. And I hadn't even had a drink yet, and uh, I could have used a stiff double at about age 12, but I didn't know that the alcohol was out there, and I didn't know what it would do for me. But I went off to college, and uh, I was at Penn State about 10 minutes, and somebody shoved a can of beer in my hand, and it was Schaefer's of Philadelphia. The beer to have if you're having more than one was their jingle in those days, and, uh, and I had two, and I uh, got rubber-legged drunk and staggered back to my dorm room, and passed out, and when I woke up, I realized if I was ever going to fit into my own generation, if I was ever going to fit in on planet Earth at all, I was going to have to learn how to drink. And I don't know where that idea came from, but it was, it was loud and clear that I was going to have to learn how to drink. So I got into training with drinking, like anything else I was ever any good at. And, uh, and after a couple months, I wasn't throwing up on myself. I was drinking that 3-2 beer at those fraternity parties and things like that, and uh, all of a sudden I had a social life, and uh, alcohol had done it, and uh, alcohol was going to get all the credit for anything good that happened in my life for a long, long time. And every time I came to any kind of decision, any kind of a fork in the road,
and on one side was some kind of productivity or success or achievement, and on the other side was uh, alcohol and any combination of other things, I always took the road that had alcohol on it. And, uh, you know, in AA, after a while, you get a perspective on your life, and you can see the patterns and how clearly these things happened and how the disease of alcoholism encroached on all of my decisions and encroached on my life to the point where, uh, as time went on, as the disease became more, you know, as the evidence of the progressiveness of the disease was evidenced in my life, the more obvious it was to me and everyone around me, especially the people around me, not so much me for a long time, that, uh, that alcohol had taken over. And, uh, but that was, that was a while in the making. I, uh, <clears throat> I was at Penn State to run the mile. I was a miler. You know, I was, uh, <clears throat> and so in the fall, in the cross country season, we ran miles one day for time and, uh, in practice just to see who's who. And, uh, I ran a mile in four minutes and seven seconds, which was pretty quick for a kid who just turned 18. And one of the assistant coaches uh, came up to me with his clipboard, and he said, uh, Casey, we, we chart these things, and at the rate you're going, you're going to break the four-minute mile within the next year, and you're going to be the youngest person in history to have done that. And I want you to know that we're all behind you, and keep up the good work, attaboy. And uh, I remember exactly what I thought. I remember that moment. I thought, he knows I can do it. I know I can do it. Everybody I run against knows I can do it. I don't have to do it. I'm done. I'm out of here. And I never ran competitively again after the end of that season. Uh, we finished second in the nation that year. We were a powerhouse team. There was everything to achieve, and yet, in my mind, it was already done. It's like the Catholic version of sin. If you thought about it long enough and hard enough, you may as well have done it. It's a mortal sin, and you're done. And, uh, and this, was, uh, this was the way I operated. You know, it's uh, come right up to the door of achieving something or doing something right, and then turn away. And... Uh, you know, uh, the stories of alcoholics are full of that kind of behavior. They almost did it. They almost made a name. And uh, But I had to drink, and I learned how to drink uh, Southern Comfort. I took some Southern Comfort to a football game one day. I got a pint. Somebody said, you ought to try this stuff. doesn't fill you up like beer. And I bought two large Cokes, dumped out half of each one, dumped in a pint, half a pint into each one of these Cokes, and uh, as 10 minutes of the time elapsed on the football clock, I downed both of those Cokes. I didn't drop a, didn't spill a drop. And uh, I wasn't, I wasn't bombed like I've got with beer. I, was, I didn't have that bloated feeling. I didn't have that full, about the puke kind of feeling. And I just felt alive and in living color and full of myself for the first time in my life. You know, I was that emotionally dwarfed teenager that uh, had pimples like Chinese jungle rot, it seemed to me, and, uh, and all of a sudden I was just fine. I was okay. And the, the, little, the little wasted, uh, emotionally underdeveloped person inside of me that was fearful and insecure was gone, was dropped away, and I was okay. And... Uh, 
I almost died from uh, chugging down all that southern comfort, but I remembered the feeling. And uh, luckily for me, I'm a lucky alcoholic. Uh, there's all kinds of other things to drink, and I, uh, I drank uh, scotch and rum and gin and all of that stuff. And uh, I loved everything about drinking, and, uh, and uh, I was off and running. And uh, right before Penn State could throw me out, uh, I said, I'm leaving anyway. Uh, you can't fire me. I quit became one of my theme songs. And, uh, and I left, and I... Uh, Went around to uh, Pitt for a while, and uh, then Youngstown. And uh, in the early 60s and the mid 60s, I was living in Youngstown, Ohio. The dreaded 60s were about to kick off, and uh, again, I was there not very long. And somebody handed me a stick of boo or reefer, we called it in those days, and not uh, that complicated Spanish word, marijuana. And uh, we uh, we smoked this stuff at a beer blast, and uh, the next day I hadn't had quite so much beer because I liked the effect of the grass and. Uh, when I woke up, the only part of me that hurt was my cheeks from cramping up from laughing so hard, and uh, and I like that, and I'm loyal to the things that I like, and so I smoked that stuff every day for the next ten years, and I uh, made cookies and brownies and coffee cake and stuffed chickens with it, and uh, you know, if you came to my house, you were going to get swacked one way or another, whether you uh, whether you were prepared for it or not, and uh, and of course. Uh, Along with that came all of the other stuff. The pharmacy doors flew wide open with illegal and legal stuff, and we all, a bunch of us knuckleheads, raced it through the door that wanted to live fictitious lives anyway, and uh, and we inhabited this new place. And uh, I got rid of all of my Ivy League kind of clothes that I had picked up from being in an Eastern college, and uh, and I got myself uh, hair that grew down to about here, a nice black leather jacket like Brando wore in the wild one, you know, uh, what are you rebelling against, Johnny? And he says, what do you got? And that's it, you know. We don't know why we're rebelling. It's, life's too good. We want to screw it up. We're going to shoot for the moon. We're going to do everything wrong and see what happens. And uh, how do you explain it? You know, you can't. And uh, and I got my jeans and my boots and all of that stuff. And uh, you know, and this was this was new then. I mean, people would slam on the brakes of their cars when you're walking down the street and scream out the window at you, "Get a haircut, you commie bastard!" You know, it's like, "Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for sharing." <laughs> we are trying to destroy the middle class and tear down the fascist imperialist government, but uh, in the meantime, we're just gonna do some of this and some of that. And so I got involved in all of that stuff, and uh, and it was delightful. It was perfect for somebody like me because I, uh, I could be standing at the corner of the bar at midnight with my shades on, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the kind of bars I hung out in looked like a bear convention or something. You know, I mean, there's just hair everywhere. And I would be still ambulatory, but I would have gotten a combination of ingredients just to the point where I was barely breathing, I could no longer talk, you know, it's like, I have one of these, you know, it's like, and, uh, but I had a term for that. I could rationalize and justify anything. That, the term for that was post-verbal, you know, <laughs> I'm beyond words, I don't need words anymore, I, you know, uh, anything that, any kind of wacky behavior at all, I could go into a long philosophical dissertation and uh, bore your ears off, but I could justify all of that stuff, and uh, and I did. 
And I had a, uh, a girlfriend uh, along about this time who said, uh, you know, when you die, and it won't be long the way you're going through things, uh, I'm going to have you cremated and sell your ashes for 50 bucks a spoon. And uh, <laughs> kind of a backhanded compliment because, uh, you know, the part about dying soon I didn't like, but 50 bucks a spoon was actually kind of a compliment, you know, and some the high price spread, you know. And... Uh, and uh, Further, I was uh, I got involved with uh, because all of this stuff was felonious. I got involved with uh, business dealings with people that I wouldn't have met otherwise, and uh, so I had a lot of little shady business dealings with uh, those kind of Runyon-esque characters from uh, the Italian mafia and the Lebanese mafia, various biker gangs, uh, the Laguna Brotherhood, the Black Panthers. Uh, People, it's fair to say, would not normally mix. And uh, but I loved all of that because I liked the uh, I liked the whole zany thing. You know, I'm this white middle class kid from this uh, average uh, Leave It to Beaver kind of family, and now all of a sudden I've got all of these crazy friends. And uh, this was a great way for me to live. And I, uh, you know, as as sarcastic or snide as I may sound about some of those uh, days and some of those events, I really loved the people that I was around at the time. These were, these were some extraordinary people, and I loved all of the stuff about the music scene. The message seemed to be in the music, and so I was around the music scene as much as I could be, and I, uh, I eventually uh, came to California because I had to leave town quickly. There got to be some confusion among the uh, police that were supposed to lay off and didn't and all of that, and, uh, and so I uh, raced to the coast and uh, started hanging around with all the famous dead rock and roll stars down on uh, the strip at Barney's Beanery and uh, the rain check room and uh, some of these, uh, the whiskey and Rudy's and uh, the funkier bars along that section of Santa Monica Boulevard and the strip where Holloway runs up and down there. And uh, for those of you that know that area, Sharon B. among them, uh, you know, we... <laughs> Our paths may have crossed, but uh, three of us moved in on a friend of mine, and he lived in a $75 a month roach farm on North Vermont Avenue, and this was a delightful little hovel. Uh, we were hardly ever there anyway because we were down at the Strip, and uh, everything was going along beautifully. We were calling it Holly Weird, Ohio, because we had come there from Ohio, and uh and we would, uh, you know, kick everybody out of a booth in the back, and then we would write things uh, on the on the walls with magic marker, like uh, many are called, but few accept the charges, and uh, a lot of other mysterious semi-zen things, just to be wise guys. And uh, and all this was going great until my buddy got stabbed in the heart with a steak knife by his hooker girlfriend, and his family came and trucked him away. And in a brilliant alcoholic move, I. Uh, moved in with the Stabber's two best girlfriends <coughs> who were uh, semi-professional party girls that needed a little personal management and uh, kind of some watching out for. And, uh, and I was elected, and so we uh, cleared out two apartments and moved into this huge house just off the strip. And, uh, and we had no visible means of employment whatsoever, but, uh, <clears throat> but we had a delightful non-stop party going all the time. I was, uh, I was 26 years old. I was in the prime. I was physically strong, and, uh, and I just uh, I had a wonderful time. I had uh, run into some, uh, some junior mob guys from Long Island who uh, 
weren't dressed right for the product they were trying to move, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, they were wearing silk suits and carrying 9mm automatics right here, and they didn't look too hip, but uh, I did, you know, because I was hip and I was cool and, uh, and all of that. You know, cool to me meant to be cold and to show no emotion whatsoever unless it was manufactured for the occasion so that you could appear to be human. You know, I was so divorced from my own feelings, I guess psychologists would call it alienation. To me, it was a great way to be because I was immune from the consequences. I had no real responsibilities, and uh, I was bulletproof. You know, nothing could hurt me. Nothing could harm me because I was living where fictional characters live. I was, I was heroic. I was saintly. I was nonstop all the time, and, uh, and I was getting crazier by the minute. But... Uh, but I had it all figured out. And uh, one of the guys who was uh, one of my clients uh, was a mailman, and he was boosting major credit cards directly out of the mail and giving them to me for uh, <coughs> favors. And, uh, and my girlfriends and I were going on lightning-fast shopping sprees with our overdue rent-a-cars and... Uh, and just having a really good time liberating the material goods from the fascist infrastructure and, you know, all of that kind of rhetoric from the 60s and, uh, and having a real good time. And, of course, this little house of cards had to come to an end, I guess. Uh, a friend of mine that had been overseas uh, came back to the United States, found out where I was living, came over one day, and he said, Casey, man, I can't believe where, the way you're living here. What's, who are all these people in your living room? You know, this is this is scary. And I said, uh, Denny, man, these are, these are my patients. You know, they, they call me doctor, and I'm helping guide them through life, and uh, they need me. He said, you know, you're driving everybody crazy here. This looks like a band of snaggletooth junkies like the Manson clan here. They'll, they're drooling idiots. And uh, I said, yeah, it's great, isn't it? They'll do anything I want, and uh, we got a whole good thing happening here. And uh, and he said, who's that guy? And that was, that was Jim. Jim was my uh, constant companion. He would hang around with just like two steps behind me over here. He had a leather briefcase. And he looked like the kind of guy who should not own a leather briefcase. And, uh, and uh, one day I asked Jim, hey, what's in the briefcase, man? And uh, he said, oh, I'm just uh, keeping an eye on you, man. Uh, you know, uh, I got a few things in here. And he popped it open. He had about uh, 30 uh, sets of uh, syringes in there and a a loaded 38 uh, revolver, and I said, good, you stay right there and uh, take care of me. Don't let anybody uh, sneak up behind me, buddy. And, uh, and so it was a lot like that. And uh, then he said, we got to get you out of here. You know, you're killing these people. This is nuts. And uh, I said, I can't leave, man. I mean, Hendrix comes to parties at my house. This is a happening place. It's party time all the time. Even though I've grown myself down to a swift 130 pounds, you know, and he said, yeah, you're all eyeballs and elbows, you know, we got to get... I said, you got a better idea? He said, yeah, we're going to join the Merchant Marine and smuggle jewels and drugs from the South Sea Islands. And uh, I said, you know, let's get going. These people will have to fend for themselves. I'm out of here. Fairweather friend that I was, I, uh, you know, I knew a good idea when I heard one. So uh, we found a Mercedes laying around somewhere and... Uh, <clears throat> zoomed off up north to the Bay Area and Portland and Seattle and tried to join the Merchant Marine and uh, got the boot from the, uh, the harbor master's office in each of those places. And, uh, and uh, I guess they didn't like the cut of our jib or something, as they would say in the Merchant Marine. And uh, 
So we wound up back in San Francisco, and I was no longer the uh, mastermind and uh, with my uh, band of uh, maniacs with me. I was now on the street. I had no... I had really hurt myself bad, you know, with all of my good times. I was now pretty crazy, and uh, I was selling my blood for five bucks an ounce, uh, or a pint, not an ounce, a pint, and uh, living in a $12 a week hotel, Finnegan's Hotel. I thought that was clever, being a literate guy. I called it Finnegan's Wake, and uh, 12 bucks a week, you get what you think you're going to get for 12 bucks a week. You know, the uh, the toilets down the uh, hallway, if you don't mind stepping over a couple of junkies on the way there, and uh, who knows if they're alive or dead, and... Uh, this is uh, no longer working out really well. And so uh, we got a car and drove it eastbound and uh, went to Joppa, Missouri, and were warned that the last uh, long-haired creeps that were in that little town woke up dead in the park the next day with their heads shaved, and we could take a hint and left there. And uh, I wound up living in an abandoned train station in Chicago. Beautiful place, really, you know, nice high vaulted ceilings, uh, big high benches, kind of like church pews, and uh, I had I could carry everything I owned in my hands. I had a backpack, I had a spare pair of boots, I had the clothes on my back, I had a nice long straight-bladed hunting knife, so I'd be one jump ahead of the, all of those knuckleheads that were carrying those folding buck knives, and, uh, and I was not a victim of anything. I was a victimizer. You know, I took, and uh, if you came into my train station, uh, I owned you, and uh, and I need to remember that. I need to remember that uh, people have said, you know, you were living like an animal. No, I wasn't. No animal was like that. That's an insult to the animals, you know. <laughs> I uh, <clears throat> And this is the best I could figure out. You know, this is uh, our best thinking got us here. You know, this was the best I could come up with. And uh, living in this train station, uh, eventually I wound up back in Youngstown, Ohio, and I was living in a crash pad, and I was down to my last dollar. I had one dollar to my name. I'd been, uh, I'd been living like a fictional character in the beatnik literature, you know, Ferlinghetti and Kerouac and all that stuff. I was on the road. I was a Dharma bum. I was a desolation angel. You know, I could still romanticize anything that was happening in my life, and... Uh, one day I had a dollar to my name, and I was thirsty, and I got a nice quart of red ripple wine rather than a uh, cheeseburger. Even though I was hungry, I knew that I had to drink, and I had to have fresh alcohol in my system because I'm an alcoholic, and I had to have fresh alcohol in my system because I couldn't exist without that best chemical friend aboard. And uh, I got back to that crash pad, and I realized that a quart of wine wasn't going to last very long, and... And I came up with a bright idea, and I scrounged around that place, and I found a syringe, and I drew up two cc's of red ripple wine and fired it into my arm because uh, somebody said, uh, you're probably not a social drinker, you know. I, uh, I was not really very social, I guess, and, uh, but, uh, you know, if you're new, uh, that's not a definition of alcoholism. That's a definition of something else about desperation. Nobody had to explain to me what any lengths meant when I got here, that's for sure. I... Uh, and I will tell you, though, that uh, in a room of two or three hundred people at uh, the meetings in Southern California, when I've shared that, and I certainly don't share that to gross anybody out or for people, sometimes like in Glendale, they go, you know, and you say that. And, uh, and then somebody will come up to me and say, uh, you know, I shot grain alcohol. And I go, you know, because it's all in your perspective, I guess. And uh, 
But people will come up to me and, uh, and say, you know, I did that too. And about half the time they also add, and I've never told another living human being that I've done that. And I want you to know that in Alcoholics Anonymous, we are free from the guilty things and the shameful things that we did in the past. That's how we have the fourth and fifth step. That's why we band together here and share the simple things that we know about recovery, about our experience, strength, and hope. Because uh, here in Alcoholics Anonymous, we are free to go. We're free to go from the, the chains of the past that drag us down, and we are free to become ourselves and to find out who we are. And uh, that's part of it. That's part of the whole thing. I, uh, and that's why I share that. I, uh, you know, from that time until I got sober was 12 years. You know, I, uh, I'm not going to drag you through the whole deal. Let me just put it this way. It's progressive. It didn't get better. And... Uh, I will tell you, when I got back to California a few years later, uh, I started getting arrested for drunk driving, and uh, within a very short period of time, I was court-ordered to go. I went off to uh, Santa Monica Jail, West L.A. Jail, uh, L.A. County Jail. I was uh, court-ordered to uh, go to the, a diversion program where we had rap sessions where they, they wrote, uh, you had to describe your feelings. You were trying to get in touch with your feelings, and they wrote, glad, sad, or mad up on the wall. Are you glad, sad, or mad? And I'd say, I'm jocose, lacrimose, and bellicose. You know, I'm, you can't touch me with glad, sad, and mad. I had to... I had that intellectual arrogance of a, of a knucklehead with a big vocabulary that, uh, that didn't have a clue. And, uh, and they also court-ordered me to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, which was the good part, because uh, initially I didn't think this was such a hot idea, but I downed about eight beers, and I went racing off to 26 in Broadway in Santa Monica, a speaker meeting, because I had called central office. There's this whole apparatus. It's easy to get in touch with AA. You just pick up the phone, dial information, and all of a sudden you're talking to somebody who says, uh, sounds like you could use a meeting. And uh, I still remember that first speaker that I ever heard, and a uh, delightful guy, a terrific uh, story. And he was a, uh, a lawyer who get, fell in league with a drunken doctor and a drunken insurance man, and they set out to defraud the insurance company in the state of California. And they got caught because they were all drunk, and he got disbarred, and everybody laughed and laughed and laughed. And I thought, boy, what a sadistic bunch of people. You know, this guy <laughs> lost his entire livelihood. He hasn't got a chance, and they're yucking it up. And uh, I thought, I like this. I like this. You know, <laughs> these people are twisted, and uh, I'm going to fit in good here. And he started talking about recovery and kind of lost me. So I went up afterwards and tried to uh, get him to tell me a little more about this this uh, complicated scam, because uh, being a connoisseur of hot scams, I figured I could figure out where he went wrong and I could make it work, you know. And uh, he kind of patted me on the head when I breathed all that beer on him and said, you know, it works a little better if you don't drink between meetings, kid. Uh, try coming back tomorrow. And I there's a meeting again tomorrow? You know, it's like I knew nothing. And uh, But I, I really wanted to get sober, and so I checked into a hospital in Long Beach, California, and... Uh, after five days, they did a blood test, found out I was still toxic, sent me over to Rancho Los Amigos in Downey, and I was in the intensive care unit there for the next 21 days. While I was there being detoxed from all the other stuff I was on with Valium, I didn't have anything to complain about, so I complained about the Valium, and, uh, and uh, always a disruptive force wherever I could uh, fit myself in. And uh, 
And so they set up an interview with this ancient Chinese doctor with a skin like parchment. He had like license number three to practice medicine in the state of California. This guy was, this guy looked like Yoda. I mean, he was this big and, you know, he was, and I thought this will be great. I'll use all of my Zen stuff on this guy, you know, and I'll call him Sensei. He'll call me Grasshopper. We'll have a great little conversation. It wasn't like that at all. I went into his office. He said, uh, sit down, uh, Casey, you've, uh, You've essentially uh, ruined your life. You've destroyed your central nervous system to the point where uh, in order for you to function well enough to go to the Social Security office and pick up your SSI check, for which you now qualify, you're going to have to take some of these and some of these for the rest of your natural life. And he held up antidepressant and antipsychotic medication and uh, said, you have essentially uh, burned your nervous system to the point where uh, you're not going to be able to function as is obvious by uh, the last few years of your life. And uh, I said, gee, Doc, bad news. Uh, you know, you're telling me I'm like a condemned building unfit for human habitation, and yet I can't move. I'm, I'm here. And he said, and not only that, <clears throat> I'm going to give you an open-ended prescription for these and these, and no matter where you are in the world, I'll send you more of these, or somebody will, for the rest of your life for free. And uh, uh, that guy was a little bit wrong. I haven't had any... Uh, if I get a headache today, I take one aspirin because because uh, I don't want to start any bad habits. You know what I mean? It's like uh, <clears throat> at any rate, uh, I don't take medication today, and I haven't uh, for over 14 years because that's what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. Clean and sober is to be clean and sober, and uh, you know my idea is uh, not to see how close to the hook I can nibble but uh, to actually live by the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, why do I, you know, why do I want to drink near beer, you know, so I can drink a six-pack and not really have a slip? I mean, why would I want that taste in my mouth? You know, why would I want to walk into a doctor's office and say, you know, I'm really restless, irritable, and discontented. Do you got anything for that? And uh, they say, oh, yeah, we got a whole prescription pad for that. Perfect. And uh, anyway... <clears throat> So I, uh, there used to be a fighter named Willie Pep. He had like a couple hundred professional fights, and in one of his later fights, he got knocked down, and he bounced right back up. And uh, in his corner, between rounds, the cornerman said, hey, why didn't you take the eight count? And he said, I don't want to start no bad habits, you know. He didn't want to get used to being down there. And uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's what it's all about. You don't hit bottom and stay there. You know, we, we rise up. You know, things get better. And uh, and my life and a lot of the lives of the two million sober alcoholics around the world is absolute evidence of all of that. Um, <clears throat> eventually, on that medication, the doctor gave me, uh, I went a little berserk, and uh, I punched a cop, and uh, <clears throat> this was a bad idea because there's like eight of them, and they've got sticks and stones and break your bones, and bingo, you're back in the drunk tank again, where I'd been a number of times before because... Even though I'd gotten three drunk drivings, I also had gotten a drunk bicycle riding, and they took away my license to ride a bicycle. Then I got drunk walking, and uh, they couldn't take away my, they couldn't repo my feet, I guess. So I, uh, I was still ambulatory out there some of the time, but then I got arrested for drunk sleeping in somebody's lawn, and, uh, you know, when I laid down to, uh, you know, fluff up the grass there, it was a beautiful, pleasant place to take a little nap. It was dark outside, and, uh, 
when I woke up, it's about 5 to 9 in the morning, and the sun is up, and uh, people that have jobs and lives are off to go to work and conduct their lives, and here's some uh, fool sleeping in their lawn. And just as I wake up, I hear the tires screech to the curb, and I look over, and there's cops. And, uh, of course, they knew me by my name then, and they say, uh, Come on, Casey, get in the car. Don't let me come and get you over there. So, of course, I try to flee, and a former track star, you know, I'm, uh, it's a little hard to run first thing in the morning when you're sleeping outdoors. And so I, you know, make an escape, and I run into this hedge, and I get caught, and it gets all in my coat, and I can't get out. I'm like a scarecrow, and uh, the cops come over, and they're laughing like crazy. And the one that knows my name says, uh, hey, the master criminal is being captured by vegetation. <laughs> Hurt my feelings. <clears throat> you know, I had a lot of uh, pride and dignity. <clears throat> yeah. And I'll tell you, if it's hard for you to imagine me uh, standing here today with my little suit and tie on and all of that, sleeping in somebody's lawn, the day that I was sleeping in that lawn, I looked exactly like somebody that goes around and sleeps in people's lawns and uh, and is uh, is uh, hopeless and helpless and uh, because that's the way I was living. But uh, I had friends and relatives, and I still knew some people that would uh, roll over when I snapped my fingers and... Uh, and I was living off the fat of the land, and I was really dangerous. And uh, so, anyway, after I uh, whacked that cop, my lawyer comes into the drunk tank and says, uh, "You really did it this time. They're going to throw you in the nut house." And uh, I said, "Isn't that for crazy people, there, Norm?" And uh, and he says, uh, "Why, yes. See, you look crazy. You smell crazy. You talk crazy." You act crazy, and now you're going to get treated like a crazy person. Is that too complicated for you? And so off to the sleepy little uh, nuthouse village of Camarillo State Hospital in Camarillo, California. And, uh, you know, it's really delightful in there. They've, uh, they've got about 50 people there at any one time in the substance abuse unit. And uh, the incorrigible people that had not no insurance and no way out. And uh, every day they had group therapy there, which is a game. You can uh, I like games. I can get good at games. And uh, so after three days I was there... Uh, my aunt had given me a nice Brooks Brothers sweater as a going-away present, kind of a get-out-of-here-we-never-want-to-see-you-again, but here's a nice sweater. <clears throat> I was wearing my sweater, and I got elected co-chairman of the Patients' Council at Camarillo State Hospital. The activists are here. We're taking over. We're going to change everything, and we didn't change anything at all. And, uh, and uh, every day we had meditation time, a nice big room, about maybe a third the size of this room with glass walls all along one side, and we sat there in these greasy old uh, pieces of furniture, staring out the window. The guy with the most amount of time had ten weeks, so we're really, really newcomers. And we've got to meditate every morning for 45 minutes while they play this record over and over again, and the record was Judy Collins singing Send In the Clowns <laughs> every day, you know. It's, if you're not crazy when you get here, wait about 10 minutes, you'll fit right in. And, uh, and I was there for Christmas and New Year's that year, and uh, on Christmas Day, captive audience that we were, we had the Hare Krishnas come in and sing to us, and uh, they entertain us. You know, they're banging their tambourines, they're wearing the saffron robes, and uh, they're just, you know, they're, they're proselytizing. They're carrying the message of their little thing, and... Uh, 
and, uh, you know, scouring the nut houses to get new clients, I guess. And, uh, you know, the guy's got the starter rope sticking out of his head, you know, like that. And I uh, say to one of my uh, compadres, I said, you know, I wonder if you get one of them in a headlock and yank on that rope, what would happen? He, he gave me a fisheye look and said, I wonder why you're in the nut house. And uh, I was insulted, so I got up and I, you know, started dancing along with the Hare Krishnas. Not a difficult beat to pick up. And... Uh, Figured we'd have kind of weird conga line and snake right out the door when nobody was looking. And a friend of mine in the front row looks at me and he says, Casey, man, you better sit down. The staff is looking at you. I said, what are they going to do, throw me in the nut house? I mean, you're, we're already here. You know, you can, you can act as crazy as you want, man, because this is where they throw you when they throw you away. We're overdone, crispy crittered out. And I didn't, you know, I got done with that little spiel and I thought, fool. That's true. And it was true. It was tough to know that we did look a little out of place on this particular planet. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> by going around to meetings in Southern California, I found out what happened to my three buddies. And, uh, you know, uh, Dave was this tall guy, about six foot one, real handsome looking guy, wanted to be a TV star and watch TV all the time and kind of memorized everything, you know, all the answers on Hollywood squares. And, and uh, his brother was an arsonist who was doing time in Joliet and got out of prison, and they went on a little crime spree. And uh, I would have been with him because they were with me when I got my fourth drunk driving arrest. And uh, Dave was the kind of guy, when we got thrown in the drunk tank and they clanged the door behind the three of us that one last time that we got arrested together, uh, Dave uh, shouted at all of the people in the drunk tank, about 30 really scary-looking dudes, and said... Uh, I guess you're wondering why I asked you all here this evening. And uh, I said, shut up, man. You're going to get us killed. And he was that kind of guy. You know, you got to love him. You know, he's a limited life expectancy, but a real funny guy. And uh, anyway, he and his brother uh, went on, uh, they stole some payroll checks, and uh, they were drunk, and they had to go back and steal a payroll check writing machine. And because they were uh, incompetent. They didn't know how to operate it, so they went back and stole a person that did know how to operate it. And uh, there's a rule against that, and uh, it's called kidnapping, <clears throat> even though she was no kid. And uh, and so they're doing 20 to life, their sister told me, and I probably would have been with them, but I was already uh, safely under the wings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, Rob, a big tall guy with a shaved head and a big handlebar mustache, uh, Actually, was in the Merchant Marine out of Oxnard, and his wife in Oxnard, uh, and uh, their three kids. Uh, she told me that uh, he had gone back into the Merchant Marine and aboard ship. He got drunk and uh, smoked a cigarette in his bunk and uh, toasted himself. And he doesn't get to be here today or anywhere else because uh, it's funny, you know. He was really enthusiastic about AA too, but you never know. You don't know why. You don't know why some people are here and some aren't. And uh, a lot of times I feel like I represent a lot of people that don't get to be here. And uh, public speaking is not something that I ever wanted to do, and, uh, and it's not something that I can do. But I can talk in Alcoholics Anonymous because it's something that I believe in passionately, and there's something that no matter how far down the scale I've gone, I can see how my experience can benefit others. It's absolutely true in my life. And uh, <clears throat> so... I've got something that I can talk about and something that I care about and something that, for me, I'm dedicated to. Uh, 
Will was the third guy, and uh, and he was uh, he was an interesting character, a big book reader. He got in a fight in the Camarillo one time, and the guy uh, punched him in the jaw. And it, before he uh, kicked the crap out of this guy, he turned to me and he said, uh, "Casey, man, he punched me in the mandible." You know, he used a 50-cent word for the jawbone, and uh, I tracked him down to the VA hospital in uh, Brentwood a half a dozen years ago, and. Uh, the doctor said you can talk to him if you want to, but uh, he hasn't said a word to another human being in over two years, and uh, he's catatonic. And uh, but I still have hope for him, and I, the same way I do for for Billy and Dave and anybody else that needs to be here, because uh, as long as they're still breathing, there's hope for them. Because amazing and miraculous things happen in Alcoholics Anonymous all the time. Lives are transformed by the thing that takes place here in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's no way that you can tell when somebody's new and they're at that that fulcrum point, that deciding point, uh, which way are they going to go. It doesn't work out there anymore. They don't know what's going on in here. They can't drink. They can't stay sober. And they're at that point, and you never know. You have no way of knowing. And uh, <clears throat> something, some little thing will make the decision for them. I uh, I started going to meetings on a regular basis, and I got a sponsor. And the reason I got a sponsor is because everybody bugged me, and people in my home group insisted you get a sponsor, and people gave me their phone numbers and cards. And one guy gave me a card that said he was a planner for the Mattel Corporation. And uh, I said, that's that little toy company that makes the uh, Barbie doll and the Malibu Ken. Maybe they'll make a crazy Casey doll. And that was... That was my reason for asking this guy to be my sponsor. You know, this is, uh, I guess motives don't count. You know, I, uh, <clears throat> and he was kind of a mild-mannered guy with glasses and uh, kind of an Irish background. I thought, you know, in a fight I could take this guy. This is another reason for asking him to be my sponsor, another brilliant uh, idea. And, uh, and it turned out he was a really good uh, member of Alcoholics Anonymous at 13 months at the time. He's still sober. I talked to him a couple of days ago on my birthday and lives in Malden, Massachusetts. And, uh, and uh, he's still out there uh, in, ahead of me and, uh, and was a wonderful sponsor for me for my first five years. And he got me going to meetings and going to meetings and getting commitments at uh, all of the meetings I went to. And I was kind of the designated cigarette butt sweeper-upper and... Uh, Outside a meeting like this, at night I'd be out there sweeping up the cigarette butts with my silent butler on a stick and my little broom, you know, and concentrating intently on getting that little, because that Chinese doctor was part right. You know, I, I had done real hard damage to myself, and I couldn't read anymore. I had read all those books, and I couldn't read anymore and retain anything. And if I was called on to participate in a meeting where there was uh, open participation or whatever the format was, uh, all I could do was croak out that my name was Casey and I was an alcoholic, and I couldn't put together a whole sentence because I'd get two or three words into it, and my head was so loud that I couldn't remember what I had started out to say, and I would get trail off and get lost. And uh, So I was a hurting buckaroo, but uh, with that broom in my hand, all I had to do when people came out and said, good night, Casey, is all I had to do was say good night. And keep sweeping up those cigarette butts. And uh, and I had a commitment. I was being of service. And I felt like after a while that nobody could sweep up a butt like I could. You know, I had it down, man. You know, they were going to have to pry that broom out of my hand. And after a year and a half at one meeting and two years at another meeting, uh, 
where I had that commitment for the longest, uh, eventually they did come out and handed me a mop and said, you can come in now to the inside, swing a mop, learn how to do that. And I got really good at that. And of course, the commitments have gotten more uh, complex and, uh, and uh, a lot more fun, I guess. But, uh, you know, I look back now at uh, sweeping up those cigarette butts and uh, that was pretty fun. You know, I liked it because... Uh, I really felt like I was a part of this entire thing. Uh, so if you're new, I recommend that you do that. You know, get a sponsor and uh, find the kind of sponsor that uh, likes to see you get active. And uh, my sponsor also wanted me to get active in the steps. And, uh, and I knew my life was uh, unmanageable, and I knew that I was powerless over alcohol, and I knew that a lot of that stuff. But uh, when he told me that he wanted me to start praying to a power greater than myself, I uh, said, Keith, you don't understand uh, the God that I rejected when I was about seven years old, when I comprehended what the Catholic God was, which was kind of an infantile comprehension, is uh, an all-powerful God, an all-powerful God who can hurl you into a lake of liquid fire for all eternity for eating a bologna sandwich on Friday. I mean, I don't want this guy to know where I am, and I'm not going to tip my hand by sending up some weak little prayer. And he said, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't believe in the God you don't believe in either. And he kind of lost me on that one. And uh, so he explained to me that I could essentially, until, uh, until I had a little better grip, I could make up any God at all. I could pray to anything that I wanted to, even a doorknob. And I went home, prayed to a doorknob that, that night. And as sick as I was, I knew that I felt like an idiot. And so the next day, I went down to the beach being unemployed and... Uh, strolled along trying to think of a really hip God, the one behind the one, something that would be up to my standards, being a newcomer, arrogant knucklehead in Alcoholics Anonymous with a bizarre and hallucinatory sense of everything. And uh, so I'm looking at the sand, I'm looking at the sky, the mountains and all of that, and bingo, I get it, and I go to the meeting that night and I say, Keith, I got it, I got it, I got it, it's the ocean, man, it's the ultimate thing, it's controlled by the the moon, it's got the tides, it's, uh, it's three quarters of the earth, it's, uh, it's everything, it's ever changing, it's always the same, it's smooth on top, but underneath the big ones are eating the little ones, and it's a vicious fight for survival. And he said, stop, cut, cut. He said, what I would like you to do is say, please keep me sober today in the morning, and in the evening say, thank you for keeping me sober today. And that's all. And if you want to elaborate from there and think about sharp-toothed fish, on, do that on your own time. Don't bother me with the details, you knucklehead newcomer. They talk, they talk nasty to you here, you know. They have no respect for your, you know, the intellectual achievements that uh, a really profound thinker can come up with. <clears throat> and I had some profound stinking thinking when I was, uh, when I was new. And I... Uh, and I still have a sponsor today, a guy named Johnny H. from Long Beach, California, who is a, uh, a terrific guy and uh, a wise and wonderful and gentle guy who's been sober a long time and, uh, and helps, uh, helps pick up the things that are... When I start getting off the broad highway, when I start getting off the beam, uh, he'll be very quick to tell me what's going on in my life because... Uh, I tell them everything. I don't have any secrets today. I, you know, I didn't tell anybody about that shooting wine incident for at least five years of my sobriety except my sponsor because I was uh, very ashamed of it. And uh, 
there were a lot of things when I was new that were very scary to me. I had had grand mal seizures as a result of drinking, and uh, the last grand mal seizure I had, I was in a hospital about to be transferred to another hospital. I was tying my shoe, and I went into a seizure and almost chewed my tongue off, uh, I found out later, and woke up in the other hospital. And so I had an abnormal fear of shoelaces, which is not the kind of thing you stand around the coffee pot when you got 60 days sober and uh, somebody comes up and says, uh, how are you doing today? And you say, uh, I'm, I'm afraid of my shoelaces. Uh, and you say, oh, really? See you around uh, like a donut. And, uh, but I told my sponsor, I said, you know, I look at shoelaces, and I know it's crazy, but it really scares the hell out of me. And he said, do you ever think of loafers? And, uh, you know, <laughs> hey, you know. I hadn't, you know. It's the simple solutions to impossibly complex problems that we just can't figure out. And uh, <clears throat> I told you that Johnny's my sponsor uh, a couple of years ago. A woman was telling me that uh, she had a lot of time, 20 years or so, and uh, her sponsor, Clancy, was insisting that uh, she call him every day. And uh, so she asked Johnny, do you call your sponsor, Clancy, every day? And Johnny said, yeah, if we're both in town and I know that, I'll call him up. And she relayed this to me. And so uh, I mentioned it to him, and I said, <clears throat> you know, I know you call him every day, and uh, you just say hi, and he says hi, and you ask each other how you doing, but let me ask you something. Between the two of you right now, you've got about 70 years of sobriety. What on earth, what spiritual minutiae, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, what do you talk about when you really get serious about, and he said, well, let me tell you, something just came up today, you know, and he had this little story ready for me, and uh, he said, as you know, Clancy's wife Charlotte's out of town for the summer. She's in Wisconsin. So Clancy's at home. He's got to do the laundry and all of that house cleaning stuff by himself. So when I called him up today and uh, he said, how are you doing? I said, fine. I said, how are you doing? And he said, uh, well, not so good, really. I'm having a laundry problem. And I said, what's that? And he said, I just can't seem to get my whites white. And I said, I said, have you tried New Tide? It's got bleach. And, uh, and by then I'm going... Why, you gotta be kidding me. And he said, You know, you may think I'm kidding you, but in reality, that's exactly what AA is about. He said, How long has it been since you've thought about drinking seriously? And I said, It's been quite a few years. And he said, Same with me, same with Clancy. But what we need to do is share our experience, strength, and hope about the simple things in life that one guy's got the answer to and the other guy just doesn't know yet. And it's that. Talk about keep it simple. I thought, you know, I, he was making me dizzy listening to this story about the new tide. And uh, But it does make sense. You know, that's what we talk about here is we share. I, I bring my world into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I share what my world looks like compared to your world. And I say, my world looks a little out of round here. It looks a little warped. What do you think? And we, we talk about the things, the, the simple things in life, the complicated things in life, the problems that we have, because no matter where you've been and what you've done, somebody in AA has done it better, further, faster be, than you have. And, uh, and so we can, we can share those things with each other. I, uh, 
Again, when I was new, I came in and I felt different, and there was a guy, uh, you know, I had run that mile in four minutes and seven seconds. I thought nobody in this rummy outfit ever did that, and I wasn't in AA two weeks. And in Ohio Street in the west side of Los Angeles, I ran into John M., who I, I knew who he was. And the reason I knew is because he'd been written up in Sports Illustrated along with some other guys, and uh, they all ran collectively the fastest mile ever run in the history of the world. He ran a 355.9, and I knew who he was, and I knew that my 407 was pretty much nothing compared to his 355.9. And so one of the last things that that was whittled away that made me different and unique from everybody else. And, uh, and you know, and if you have things in your life that make you feel like you're different and uh, that your case is truly unique, uh, you can disabuse yourself of those things. You can go around and take a poll, and you'll find that uh, somebody has been where you've been and uh, knows all about it and, uh, and will be happy to share with you. And... Uh, Another one of those things that I've uh, I've found in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, you know, I I went through the steps with my sponsor and I did an inventory and I found out in an inventory that I'd hurt a lot of people and uh, and a lot of those people I needed to make financial amends to and a lot of them I needed to make emotional amends to and uh, and I started making a lot of money. Eventually, I was uh, my sponsor forced me to go to work and get a job. And in getting a job, I found out that I had a talent for uh, selling things. And all through the 80s, like I mentioned at the beginning, I was in sales. And, uh, of course, I'd been in sales before, too, if you remember. And, you know, and if you can sell toxic poison that will kill people to them, to actually sell a useful product or service to somebody that will be beneficial to them, piece of cake, you know. And uh, if you uh, if you sell things to people that actually have a bank account, you get paid. It's absolutely amazing. It's the simplest thing. And so this helped me make amends. And the more, uh, you know, I had some colossal amends to make. I started using my real name, my real Social Security number, and uh, they start coming after you. That's what I figured out. They're going to be here any minute. So I called up the National Student Defense Fund. I called the uh, IRS, and they said, Aha, we've been looking for you. And I said, I'll bet you have. Here I am. What do I owe you? And they said, Wait a minute. And uh, in the case of the, uh, the student loan, that was uh, several thousand dollars with 20 years of interest and penalties compounded every 15 minutes. And uh, it was a whole lot of money. And you know what? I could write them a check. And... Uh, and I felt good, and I started feeling clean about myself because uh, I was coming clean. And I was making emotional amends to people saying, uh, you know, I know that I've uh, done a few things that were a little out of the ordinary here, and uh, I'm sorry, how can I make it right? And uh, some of the people, especially the people that were related to me and knew what I had, uh, how I had ignored my family, and then when I did appear, uh, how crazy and abusive it was and uh, that whole thing, it took them a few years of keeping an eye on me from a distance to allow me to come back into their lives, but uh, but eventually I could do that. But there were other amends that I couldn't make, and a lot of people that I knew died, and uh, at least half of the people that were close to me died as a direct result of alcohol and drugs. Both those women that I lived with in uh, West Hollywood are dead as a result of alcoholism. They don't get to be here. And they deserve to be here in every way. You know, all we wanted to do was have an orgasmic good time all the time. What's wrong with that? You know, well, it'll kill you, 
aside from that, what's wrong with that? Well, they don't get to be here. They don't get to be here. And uh, <clears throat> a year and a half before I got sober, my mother was uh, laying there dying of uh, bone cancer, and uh, I had just gotten out of my umpteenth rehabilitation program, and I'd been out less than a week, and I'm drinking cheap vodka, and I breathed cheap vodka all over my mom, and uh, she gave me one last look of that that look that they give you, you know, that kind of uh, pity and hopelessness and contempt and all mixed together. And uh, and she died, and there was nothing I could do about it. And, uh, and in sobriety, I, uh, I felt bad about this. I felt uh, guilty because I really always tried to never involve my family in my life. Nobody knew where I was for years or what I was doing, but uh, but she knew at the end. And, uh, and she never knew that I got sober. And so my sponsor told me to write a letter to her and take it uh, to her graveside and read that letter, and I did that. And there was a great deal of healing involved in that, but it was still, it was still a point that for me was not clear. It was not healed completely. And uh, so I had, to find out, uh, I had to find out a little more. And uh, <clears throat> I was in Palm Springs, and I had told uh, Sharon and uh, her son Wesley that I'd meet him in Culver City at... Uh, this carnival where she works every year with uh, with the nuns, and uh, they have a carnival there that raises money. It's a little church carnival, and so I zoomed back from Palm Springs. And I pulled up in front of the uh, the church grounds, and uh, they were leading some gang members away. The cops were there. The lights are gone, and all of that. And uh, there's some heavy-duty gangsters being led away, and uh, in fact, there's still some there on the grounds when the cop cars pulled away, and. And uh, I could still see some hard looks coming from some people. And as I walked across the grounds over towards the school where I knew that the nuns were uh, in the principal's office, I thought, this looks like a pretty dangerous situation going on here still. But, you know, I'm protected by uh, the God of my understanding with a loose-fitting bulletproof cloak. And uh, sometimes I think of that loose-fitting cloak that it talks about uh, is, uh, is bulletproof because... Uh, once you've lived well beyond the time when you're supposed to not be around anymore, it's all, it's all for fun and for free. So I went in and they said, oh, good, Casey's here. He can take the money we've collected and he can, they can take it over to the rectory where the priests have the safe and they can put it in there. And I thought, yeah, I'm expendable. Let me carry the money. And, uh, and but, uh, you know, uh, I need to tell you a little background about my mom. Before she went to the University of Chicago, where she graduated with honors, she went to Rosary College, and Rosary College turns out nuns, and she had spent a couple of years there. And growing up, she took us to catechism and church every Sunday, and uh, I knew the Baltimore Catechism inside out and all of that, and uh, she was very strong in that area and uh, an extraordinary woman. And uh, I'm one of those Irish guys anyway that is, you know, got a saintly mom for sure, and uh, so I'm carrying the money across the school grounds, and all of a sudden that it hit me that my mother knew that I was sober, and it was okay. It was good with her. It was good with me. She knew that I need never drink again as long as I live unless I actually smash through everything that I know and reach out and pick up a drink. And, uh, and I knew that it was okay with her. And from that uh, that kind of serendipitous event took place where I was doing something for somebody else. I was uh, fulfilling an AA request because a couple of those nuns are actually members of the program. And, uh, <clears throat> and I had suited up and showed up. I had done what I said I was going to do. 
those are spiritual principles. Those are part of the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous is doing what you said you're going to do and being where you're going to be when you said you're going to be there. And uh, it's the simplest thing. And uh, try it. It, uh, it absolutely works. Uh, I'm going to tell you one more little, uh, little tale, and then I'm going to sit down. And uh, <clears throat> I, uh, Again, a couple of years ago, I... Uh, Sharon and I were talking, and uh, she said, you know, uh, did you ever win any letters or medals or anything from running? And I said, yeah, my uh, mom collected all kinds of uh, trophies and medals and ribbons and things that I had won, and I guess they're all around somewhere. And, uh, and she said, well, what about a letter from Penn State? And I said, well, I won one, but I never went and picked it up because I was uh, having a few down at the Ratskeller, happy hour, bring a sorority girl, drink for free. You know, I mean, this is instant utopia. What do I need with a little letter? I got a bunch of those. And... She said, well, maybe you ought to get it. And I said, I, uh, anyway, sometime later, I called up Rec Hall at Penn State, and, and I said, uh, <clears throat> you know, I won a letter there about 30 years ago. And they said, oh, really? <laughs> and uh, so they said, that's not my department. Let me send you on to somebody else. And I talked to about half a dozen people, and I finally got up to uh, the track coach who uh, we talked about some of the guys I used to run with and whatever happened to this coach and that assistant coach and all of that. And, uh, and this was the, uh, the women's track coach, and she said, I've, been, uh, I've got a, one of my assistants here has got a call into the athletic director, and, uh, and he's not there, but his assistant is, uh, the assistant athletic director is uh, this woman, and uh, she wants to talk to you, and uh, so I'm going to transfer you. And so she did. And she got on the line and she said, I think I've been waiting for you to call. And I, the hair on my neck started to stand up and I said, uh, I don't understand what you mean. And uh, she said, they told me what the story is, that you earned a letter here 30 years ago. And uh, I have a funny story to tell you. She said, this morning I came into my office at 8 o'clock and there was a letter sitting on my desk here. She said, I haven't even seen one in over 15 years, and I've been here for 27 years. She said, we don't give out letters anymore. We give out patches and stadium blankets and warm-up jackets. And yet, here's this 8-inch chenille Block S letter. I don't have any idea where it came from, and until you called, I had no idea what I was going to do with it. And she said, but I'm going to send it to you. And uh, before we got off the phone, she said... Uh, do a lot of little miracles happen in your life? And, uh, I said, yeah, you got about an hour? <laughs> and, uh, and so she sent me the letter, and uh, she typed a letter and, uh, along with it and said that uh, you're going to be the last person in, uh, that uh, ever went to the Pennsylvania State University to receive a letter. And congratulations. And uh, that Christmas, uh, I got a nice letter jacket, and it's got this nice new letter on it. And... Uh, so I'm a guy in his early 50s with a brand new Penn State letter jacket with a nice brand new letter, the last guy on earth to get a letter from Penn State just in time. And uh, it's just a nice little thing, but it kind of, uh, for me, wraps up something that, uh, that I bolted on, that I absconded on, that, uh, that, I, that I never fulfilled. And uh, things... Things happen in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. <clears throat> Things that uh, you have no 
way of knowing in advance what's in store for you. And uh, for those of you who are newer here, I want you to know that uh, you're in for the ride of your life. You're going to get to know you're going to get to know some real simple things about what you like, what you don't like, what you're supposed to be doing. You're going to get the opportunity to be yourself. You're going to get to walk down <coughs> the street out there, just any city street anywhere, in Monterey or Los Angeles, without being consumed by fear down below all of it, you know, is that self-centered fear. And uh, you're going to be free of that in a way that you've never been free ever. And, uh, you know, I know that for a person like me that lived in the world of books, that I had to do exactly what I had to do. And I had to go down the tubes in every department of my life and be wiped clean and empty to come into Alcoholics Anonymous to listen with the ears of the dying, to be filled up with a spiritual program where I had none. I was a vacuum waiting for something to happen, and something good happened. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I have a sense of purpose. I have a sense of direction. I have a reason for being that I couldn't have had in any other way. And I get to be here this weekend with, uh, with Sharon and Wes and with all of you. And uh, I want to thank you for my life, and God bless you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.